Welcome back to our online. Hope your kids are settled. Welcome back to the rest of you. We, we, we don't have any trouble chatting here, do we? <laughs> As a rule. Okay, well, we've been doing a series. We had a break last week because we had Jeff from Compassion, but a series about prayer. And we've been looking at different uh, experiences of prayer in the Bible and in our own experience in life, historically, and in our lives that we're actually living today. And there's a pile of things we could say about prayer, but I think one thing most people would agree with is this statement, that prayer is a mysterious thing. It doesn't easily get kind of categorised and boxed up and, oh, well, A always equals B, etc. So I think we can agree at that. And today what we're going to do is have a look at probably what I think is the standout passage in the Bible when it comes to thinking about prayer as mysterious and also when it comes to thinking about the, the painful experiences of prayer, when it comes to thinking about why some prayers are so clearly and so comprehensively answered and why other prayers are just as clearly and just as comprehensively unanswered. We're going to sort of look in, in, in that sort of gap today. You might even say, what's the point of prayer? Unanswered prayer hurts, doesn't it? Thought I'd get a few more nods. <laughs> Unanswered prayer hurts me. <laughs> Unanswered prayer hurts. You know, I'm not alone, even if there's not many of you out there. I'm not alone because nearly one third of the Psalms in the Old Testament are given over to the pain of unanswered prayer. They're called the Lament Psalms. And today I'm going to read the most remarkable of these, Psalm 88. Uh, we sent an, an, an email out, to, I think, with the E News saying, if you get a chance, read Psalm 88 before you come today and take notice of how it made you feel. When Hayden read that, he said, oh, Flip, now you're giving us homework before we even get to come up. Anyway, you didn't have to, but maybe some of you did. So I want you to tap into um, how you might have felt when you read it. Or if you haven't heard it recently and you're going to hear it now, I want you to think about how the psalm makes you feel. I'm sure you'll have lots of thoughts about it. How does it make you feel? What goes on in your heart and your emotions? So you ready for it? Buckle in. Psalm 88. It's a psalm of Heman the Ezraite. Starts like this. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out to you by day. I come to you at night. Now hear my prayer. Listen to my cry. For my life is full of troubles and death draws near. I am as good as dead, like a strong man with no strength left. They have left me among the dead, and I lie like a corpse in a grave. I am forgotten, cut off from your care. You have thrown me into the lowest pit, into the darkest depths. Your anger weighs me down, and with wave after wave you have engulfed me. You've driven my friends away by making me repulsive to them. I'm in a trap with no way of escape. My eyes are blinded by my tears. Each day I beg for your help, O oh Lord. I lift my hands to you for mercy. Are your wonderful deeds of any use to the dead? Do the dead rise up and praise you? 
Can those in the grave declare your unfailing love? Can they proclaim your faithfulness in the place of destruction? Can the darkness speak of your wonderful deeds? Can anyone in the land of forgetfulness talk about your righteousness? Oh Lord, I cry out to you. I will keep on pleading day by day. Oh Lord, why do you reject me? Why do you turn your face from me? I've been sick and close to death since my youth. I stand helpless and desperate before your terrors. Your fierce anger has overwhelmed me and your terrors have paralysed me. They swirl around me like floodwaters all day long. They have engulfed me completely. You have taken away my companions and loved ones and darkness is my closest friend. Just think for a moment, how does that psalm make you feel? Maybe it makes some of us feel a little bit awkward. <laughs> I mean, it seems like him and the Ezraite must have missed the class the day they did prayer etiquette. <laughs> you know, you can't really talk to God like that. And it's not just the way that he talks to God, it's the everything else that goes along. It's so intense and passionate and pleading. And as we sit here in our WA COVID bubble on this extraordinary spring weekend, you know, towards the end of spring, summer's coming. You know, you can read a psalm like this and it can seem a little bit too far removed from what's real to us. It can seem a little bit unnecessary. It's just awkward and a little bit over the top and like not really in touch with how life seems as we stand and appreciate it at this stage. It's, it's so extreme, isn't it? It's urgent. It's life and death. And it is not redeemed like every other lament psalm is by the last, last few verses that turn back to hope. Turn back to that, but it's okay. God's got this. All's going to be well. Doesn't say it quite like that. Says it much more poetically and beautifully. This psalm, what did it end with? De darkness is my closest friend. And this psalm is in fact so unusual that some scholars have suggested there must be some missing verses. They've suggested there's, there's got to be something that, you know, we've got lost along the way that actually makes this psalm end with something more hopeful. And of course, that's not impossible. It's not impossible. But most scholars will agree that there's nothing, nothing in this psalm, nothing in the way that it's been recorded over history to suggest that that's what, that's what actually happened. I think the only reason that it seems plausible to us that there might be some missing verses is our own discomfort with how this ends. That makes it seem really plausible. Surely, surely there's something other than ending on this gloomy place. But I need to say today that the thing is, this psalm, this prayer is very, very plausible to some. To more than we might think. <laughs> to you and to me. And I'm sure that there are people here or listening today who heard Psalm 88 read just now and thought, at last, someone is praying my prayer. That's exactly how I felt when, or that's exactly how I feel now in this circumstance that I'm in. People whose life experience is coloured by eating disorders, a terminally ill child, unredeemable relationship breakdown, addiction, 
debilitating and incurable health conditions, being cut off from family in other parts of the world and so much more. Some people, people you know, maybe even you, will listen to Psalm 88 and say, yeah, that is how I feel. Where are you, God? Why don't you answer my prayer? So we're going to look at the circumstances that might that, that encourage Heman, the Israelite, to write this psalm and might lead others of us in the years since that time to actually pray this prayer or prayer like it. Let's have a look at the circumstances of this particular psalm and see what it says to us about our life. Now, the psalmist talks about living a kind of shadow life. He talks about that quite a lot. If you have a look, if you've got your device or your Bible there in verses 3 to 6, you'll see these sorts of phrases. I'm as good as dead. I'm like a strong man without any strength left, forgotten, cut off, living among the dead. And these are all words or similar words that I have heard real people say. And I have said words like this myself as well. This is not poetic drama. This is real life. Heman is describing that shadowy experience that we sometimes get when we are living through something that is very awful. I'm sure most of you will know that strange disconnect. You know, something tragic, something life-changing is going on in your life. And you look around and it looks like everybody is carrying on with life as usual. And it looks like it because, in fact, they are carrying on with life as usual. And that kind of leaves you looking out at the real world overwhelmed by the reality of what it is you're experiencing, but somehow feeling like the way that you're living life, that the thing that you're experiencing is a parallel world to the real world, a half-life, a, a something not quite real, although it is, of course, very, very real to you. So that's, there's a circumstance this psalmist is in which, which has led him to feel like he's living shadow existence, parallel to the real world, not living the real life. And another, another thing we see when we look at the, the circumstances in this psalm is it appears that the psalmist believes that the circumstances he is in are the result of God being angry with him. But he's got no idea why God would be angry with him. And if, so if God is angry with him, there's that strong sense in the psalm of that's unjust. It's unfair. It's not right. I, what have I done? Show me what I've done. I'll fix it. So he feels strongly that God is angry with him, but he has no idea what would possibly have made God angry. He says, your anger weighs me down with wave after wave you, wave you have engulfed me. And then in verse 16, a bit later, he talks about being overwhelmed and paralysed by God's anger. So that's another aspect about the circumstance. He feels like he's being punished by an angry God. All right, what about Heman's uh, friends and family? Where are the people closest to him? Well, he says of them to God, you have driven my friends away by making me repulsive to them. Whew. Not just driven them away, but they've gone away because they can't bear him anymore. I am in a trap with no way of escape. And then later in verse 18, he says, you, God, have taken my loved ones away from me. Now, I think probably in all of your translations, the Hebrew word... Um, is translated into English as friends. You know, you've driven my friends away. But it doesn't quite capture the intimacy of the ori original Hebrew language. Um, Heman, Heman is talking about 
they're not just acquaintances. They're not just you know friends that you might have a few circles out. These are the people that have done life most closely with you, the people that you're in most intimate relationship with. He's talking about his closest companions, and he says, he's basically saying here, that even with the people closest to you, you can actually get to the point where those people will decide that they need to step away. I don't know, maybe they, we want to self-preserve from... Let's not be with this guy who's clearly on the wrong side of God in a major way. We might just take a step or two back. Something goes on, though. The people that love him the most step away from him. And I wonder if you have ever felt like that. Have you ever felt like the circumstances you are in are actually driving people away from you, have led people to choose to step away from you? That's a horrible feeling. That's a terrible experience. So what are we going to do with this prayer? Life is unrelentingly awful. He's living, he says, in a shadowy half-life, dealing with tragedy that he assumes somehow is the outcome of God's anger, although he's got no idea why God would be angry with him. He's alone because even his nearest and dearest have backed away from him. What are we going to do with this prayer? Well, I think the most important thing we can do with this prayer, the thing that is, there's only a couple of things we can do with it, I think. The most important, the first thing, is to resist the temptation to make it neater than it is. I'd love to do that. (laughs) I'd love to say, I'd love to find those verses at the end and go, don't worry, wait, look, turn the page. You know, over the years as a pastor, I've sat with men and women, young and old, and I've heard stories of heartache and tragedy and things that are unspeakable. Things that I have to say cannot and will not be made right in this world. And I've learned lots of things, too, that I think are relevant here in those spaces. First, it's not for me to try and make it right. It's not even for me to try and convince the other that's telling their story. It's okay because there's this good thing or that good thing that might come out of this. You know, uh, It's not for me to sort of step into that tidying it up and neatening space. It's for me to just literally make space for the other person's voice to be safely heard and to listen with deep respect and compassion. And the second thing I've learnt is that remarkably, surprisingly, thankfully, people experience God's love even when this life is not made right and neat. Not long ago, I uh, heard one person's story of horrific and constant abuse through childhood into adulthood. And I'm sitting listening to this person tell their story And in my head, I'm going, how are you alive? I didn't say that out loud. How are you working? How have you raised a family? How do you show up and live? I'm sitting there thinking that, listening to this story. And then when I did ask a question, I didn't didn't use those questions, but I tentatively asked, "How how do you get through? This person said to me, shocked, looked shocked at the question really, and said, well, I'm only here because I'm sure God loves me 
and has been with me the whole way. I'm actually only alive because I'm sure God loves me and is with me. This person was sure of that even in the suffering that I wanted to make neater than it was. So I think the first thing we can do with this prayer is to let it serve as a reminder to resist the temptation to make things neater than they are. <laughs> I think we can pray this prayer and we can let other people pray this prayer without racing on to try and find a way to make the whole thing less uncomfortable and without trying to find the silver lining. Aha, but yes, look, here's the good that's coming out of this. Not saying there won't be, but it's not our job to race on into that space. There's a popular explanation of the way that God answers prayer that says God answers prayer in three ways. He says sometimes yes, sometimes no, and sometimes wait. And actually, I know that that's, that's a very genuine experience that many of us have in our prayer. So I'm not diminishing that at all. It's a very uh, true experience for many of us. But I want to say today it's also not enough. Yes, no, wait. It's not enough. Because I don't think it acknowledges the hurt of unanswered prayer that inspired Psalm 88. I don't think it respects the suffering of people we know. It doesn't respect and acknowledge our own suffering. If it has to be just one of those three. And neither is it enough to fall back on the idea that God isn't answering our prayers because of something bad we've done. Now I know we do bad things and there's consequences and we have to live with them. I'm not denying that at all. But I don't think God is in the business of ignoring us or punishing us by ignoring us. So I don't think you can put his silence down to him being miffed. I don't think God works like that. Okay, so the first thing is to resist the urge to tidy up Psalm 88 and the prayers like it that we pray or others pray. What's the second thing? Well, the second thing I think we can do with this prayer is, is to notice what is probably the most striking thing about it, apart from the unrelieved darkness. And I think the most striking thing about it is that this guy is even praying at all. <laughs> He's praying. He's got a lifetime of some horror we, we don't get told about, and he's still talking to God. I think that's just a wonderful thing, a really, yeah. He's still talking to God. And I don't think, you can push back on me if you want to, I don't think it's overreaching to see a chink of light in verse 1 and verse 13. So verse 1 says, O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out to you by day. I come to you at night. So he's praying. And in verse 13, he's actually committing to keeping on praying. He says, I will keep on pleading day by day. So that's remarkable that he's actually talking to God. And why would he do that? Well, I think the clue to that is there in a backhanded way in verses 10 to 12. He does that, uh, he, he, he calls out some of God's wonderful uh, characteristics, like his good deeds, his unfailing love, his faithfulness and his righteousness. But he does it in that backhanded way. He says to God, is there any point me telling of your wonderful love and faithfulness if I'm dead? <laughs> Who's going to listen to how righteous God is if I'm on the other side of the grave? So he's highlighting them in a backhanded way. But I think it gives a, a bit of an idea of this is who he knows God to be. He's not experiencing God like that in this moment, but he knows God to be these things. He thinks clearly it would take a miracle, 
But he, it's obvious that he doesn't think it's beyond God to answer his prayer in the living years. And I think that's because he knows who God is. And obviously he still has relationship of sorts with God. It actually reminded me of a time when something very hard was happening in our family and our, our heartache was unrelieved and our prayers went unanswered. And I've told you the fuller story in other times. I won't do it again today. But I, I got to the point where I actually quite calmly, which surprised me, decided that, that God can't be real and that my faith was just foolish embarrassment, really. It got me through 35 years or so, but I obviously was, you know, I got it all wrong. But it was God himself I spoke to about this. So I'm praying to God saying, you're not real. And I caught myself doing that going, hang on a minute. <laughs> Hello, is anybody there? I think against all odds, this psalmist says, admittedly a tentative yes. I think against all odds, many of us have experienced in those tough times in life an admittedly tentative yes. Okay, so if God is there, what's the point, though, of experiencing prayer like this? I wonder if this story from Paul might help. If you want to look it up, it's in 2 Corinthians 12. Many of you will know that Paul was a significant leader in the early church and he experienced God's presence and answered prayer in extraordinary ways, which he would often write about in his letters. And he writes about this in his letter to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 12. But in the same letter, he goes on to say to the people, I've got all these answered prayers and presence of God experiences I can boast about, but I have also know what it's like to have prayer go unanswered. And uh, it is, it's a little vague, but it appears Paul had a health issue that he took to God again and again on a number of occasions and asked for healing. And Paul says, each time God said, well, at least God answered him, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. And Paul goes on to say, that's why I take pleasure in my weakness and in the insults, hardships, persecutions and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, I am strong. There's a whole lot of stuff in there, but the thing that I think stands out in the context of today's topic, and I think it, it stands out in Psalm 88 as well, is that it seems to me that Paul has learned that the purpose of prayer is relationship. He's cotton on to the fact that the purpose of talking to God is actually relationship with God. He's learned that what's at stake when we pray is our relationship with God, regardless of what is happening around us. I think you saw that in the psalm. In his angst and his heartache and his railing, it's still God he's relating to. Now, as I wrote those words, I thought, that is so easy for a preacher to stand up on the platform and say. And you, I agree with you. If you're sitting there thinking that, I give you that. <laughs> it's much harder to live. It's harder to say, I will pray because the purpose of prayer is my relationship with God when your partner dies in a road accident, when you're bankrupt, when you face a jail sentence, 
when you can't get to the deathbed of someone you love, when you know you can't foster all the children who need care, it's much, much harder to say that the right thing to do is to pray because of relationship when you feel your life is a shadowy experience, not quite living and not quite dying. It's much harder to do it in that space, I know. But I want to say today that even so, what's at stake when we pray is relationship with God. And it was even true when God prayed to God. Listen to what happened when Jesus, God in human form, was facing arrest and crucifixion. He was praying with some close friends. He walked a little away from them, a stone's throw, the story says, and knelt down and prayed. Father, said God to God, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him, and he prayed more fervently, Father, if you are willing. And he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of, of blood, we read in Luke 22. Someone wrote about these verses, this is the most tender passage in the whole Bible. God the Son cries out to God the Father and his prayer is not answered. And so Jesus goes to the cross. He suffers and dies in tangible, physical ways we understand something of. But the greatest suffering is this. God the Son, the one who has for all eternity been united with his Father, experiences the utter horror of separation from his Father. And that separation, that silence, it tastes like hell. It's as if God the Son cries out, Papa, help me. And even though the help he asked for did not come, God the Son went to the cross to defeat death because of his relationship with God the Father. Out of love for God and love for us, and sure of the love and goodness and the presence of God the Father, even in the darkness. Jesus is, is the evidence of God's goodness and of God being for us. And that same Jesus, he knows the paradox and the hurt of what it is like to pray to a God you know is good and you know is for us, know is for you, and hear only silence. You know, sometimes just knowing God, knowing God is good and knowing God is for us is enough. Needs to be enough, is enough. I think we see that in many Bible stories and I see it, I'm sure you see it in the lives of many people we know and even in our own life experience. And so we pray. Even when our prayers go unanswered, we pray as God invites us to in, in Psalm 88. And you know, the beautiful thing about Psalm 88 is that God is saying, it's okay, say it, tell me. 
I know that life is hurting you. Talk to me. Turn to me. I am here and I am for you. And sometimes that's all that we have to hold on to, that God is good and God is for us. And so we pray to step into that relational space. So what are you going to do with this message this morning? I'm not going to parcel it up into something tidy, but I do have some application that you might think about. What are you going to do with this message this morning? I guess if you're experiencing life in the shadow place right now, maybe what you can do is choose to hold on to relationship with the good and for you God. Not because things are working out neatly around you, but to choose to hold on to relationship with the good and for you God by praying Psalm 88 with all your being or another prayer, similar prayer of your own words. Maybe that's the best thing you can do today if you feel like you're living that shadow life. Pray the prayer that God orchestrated to make sure ended up in the Bible as much as us humans would like to take it out. And maybe you're sitting here thinking, I'm not in that place. Then I want to say to you, maybe someone needs your help to either step into relationship with Jesus or to keep their grip on their relationship with Jesus right now and I want to say to you again that help doesn't mean telling them how you can see that this good thing or that good thing is going to come out of this horrible thing that's happening to them not step into the space in that way but step into the space and help them keep a grip by making place for their voice to be heard by listening and by calling in prayer with and for them to the sometimes silent and always good and for us, God. Can you live with that paradox? Jesus did. Sometimes silent and always good and for us, God. So I want to say to you, who do you know? Who in your family? Who's sitting alongside you? Who Here who's in this church family but not here today? Who in your street needs you to step into that place with them and help them keep a grip on that relationship? by making space for them to pray this prayer, by praying this prayer with them. So two, op- two options. There's many others. The Spirit might have prompted you in other ways. If you're in that shadow place, will you go home and pray this prayer? Will you find someone to pray it with here today? If you're not in the shadow place, will you ask God, even as you sit here now, who is? Who needs me to step into that place and pray this prayer with them? And for them. Not making it neat, not fixing. But sitting with them in that space. We decided we're going to close the service by uh, singing uh, the creed again. A song about what it is that we believe. A little bit like the psalmist was doing, although we won't do it quite so backhandedly. Good to declare what it is that we believe. But I want to suggest two things. I know that some of you will be happy to stand up and sing that lustily and gustily and you don't have any any hesitation and you say, yes, this is what I believe. I'm sure of that in this moment. So if that's you today, wonderful. When the time comes, stand and sing with all your might. And I know that there'll be others who will go, that's really tough for me to do that today. There's part of my head that does believe or thinks I might believe, but that's tough for me to sing those words out today. Well, that's why I've asked the other people to sing it loudly. Because 
we can hold each other's hope. That's something I've learned over the years in, in depression and other tough times. It's okay to say to someone who loves you, I can't pray, I've got no hope, pray for me, hold hope for me. So those of us who can, we're going to sing with all our heart and soul, with all our bodies this morning. And we're not singing it to uh, diminish or try and say to the people alongside us, come on, chin up. We're saying, we're going to sing this because we want to hold hope for you. And it's okay if you can't sing it or if you don't feel it or if you want to sit or, or kneel or do anything else in that space. But can you see how we can use this moment? Some of us to do the declaring and others of us to just go, yeah, I'm not feeling that right now, but I, I trust God somehow. I love these people and know they love me and they are holding hope for me. Let's be aware of each other as we sing. And before we do, though, Will you join me as we pray this very short prayer? O oh Lord, God of our salvation, we cry out to you by day. We come to you at night. And so we ask that you will hear our prayers and listen to our cries in Jesus' name. And we invite your Holy Spirit to be with us and minister to us to us and speak to us and heal us in this moment as we stand together and hold out hope.